welcome to episode 143 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm just enjoying a little bit of relaxing Lord's Day afternoon, drinking some good brewed beverage and getting ready for an evening prayer service, which will be a lot of fun and edifying. That is more or less also my experience today. Here's the thing. Is there anything really better than having just a nice adult effervescent beverage and some really great theological conversation on the Lord's Day? Does it get any better than that? I don't think it does. Not on this side of glory. Yeah, amen. I'm pretty sure on the other side of glory, the experience will <laughs> be similar, just better. <laughs> when you said it that way, it just struck me as super funny. If every time somebody said like on this side of glory, it's whatever. If the person was like, well, on the other side of yeah. glory and just gave like a totally like expounded on why on the other side would be better. I just had a theological question come into my head and then I answered it all at the same time. I was asking <laughs> since uh, <laughs> since alcohol, at least in terms of fermented beverages, is predominantly a result of like bacteria and like the the waste process of bacteria, whether there'll Yeast. be beer in heaven. And then I was like, but there's wine. So, yes. so yes, the answer is yes. Yeah, the answer is Jesus was all about that. But does that mean that there will be bacteria in the new heaven and the new earth? So that's a really, uh, is that what we're talking about tonight? No, it's not. (laughs) I just had that thought just now. Maybe Jesus just makes all of it de novo like he did with the wine at at Cana. That's exactly what I was thinking. Also, I love that you used de novo. And we should probably specify between yeast and bacteria. Isn't yeast a type of bacteria? Ah, I want to say it is, but I think some would quibble with that because bacteria tends to to connote something negative, whereas... No, 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 not anymore. No, 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 your your microbiome, you have more bacterial cells in your body than you do. Well, that's true. I mean, there's good... that's true. There's the the advent of quote-unquote good bacteria, so I I don't know if that's the case anymore. Are are we talking about probiotics all of a sudden? No, I I work in a gastroenterology (laughs) clinic, and for the most part... Probiotics are like fake news. So, <laughs> what? Wait, do you know how, how are probiotics much probiotics fake news? Do you know how much like probiotic yogurt you'd have to eat in order to actually make a difference in most cases? It's like this ridiculous amount. Well, so that is true. So, I do know a little bit about this but just because of like some health stuff. And I know that when, so here's the thing like, if you're taking a probiotic, <laughs> how did we even get here? I don't it's know. like, uh, the, all this right, is we the see reform this derailed cast. Yeah, we've got to see this through at this point. We're in too deep. So I know like if you're going to take like a probiotic for real, like of course you have to be in like, we're talking about the like CFUs, colony yeah. forming units. You got to take like in the multi-billions. So we're right. talking about like hundreds of billion of units, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, like Jamie Lee Curtis, her whole like Ativia. Ativia? Yeah, like it doesn't do anything. It's it's just yogurt. You might as well buy Yoplait and just eat that. Like probiotics when like you buy, like you're sold or you're prescribed like a probiotic medication, like a capsule that you eat or like a specific like medication, that's different. Although you don't usually eat those probiotics. They go in the other direction. But yes, <laughs> I have no shame. It's, this is what happens when you work in gastroenterology. 
Oh, this is so good. Once again, yet another topic I could not have conceived that we would talk about when we started recording just moments ago. I mean, we are one of the top 50 medical firms, innovation <laughs> firms in the country. So, <laughs> And this is why, like we're coming at you with like the yes. true probiotic information. It's true. It is true. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get even deeper into gastroenterology, do you want to kick us off with some affirmations and denials for this week? I do. And I don't have permission to do this. So I hope that you will forgive me as my brother-in-law. But today is your 12th anniversary. Is that correct? That is factually correct. So I am taking this moment to affirm one of the most godly self-sacrificial couples that I know. So Jesse and his lovely wife, Jen, are uh, two of the greatest people that I know. They're they're an example of a faithful marriage um, of people who love the Lord and love each other. So I'm affirming you and your wife and your anniversary today. I appreciate that. That's um, incredibly kind of you to say and, and very edifying. God is good to us. And just like your, well, I'm just going to go out on a limb. Just like your wife, my wife is twice the person I am. So, so much of that credit belongs to her godly example. She's always teaching me and, and edifying me and encouraging me as well. It's true. I actually think you're pretty terrible. So, <laughs> <laughs> I am kidding, of course. What about you? What are you affirming today? <laughs> no, that's actually correct. So, I totally embrace that judgment. Um, so I've got like a affirmation that's like a nested affirmation, affirmation within an affirmation. Like think of those Russian Nutrisco dolls. That's what we're about to do here. So the easy affirmation is everybody should just go out and buy an air popper for popcorn because yes. popcorn is delicious and air pop popcorn is just super easy for the most part, relatively healthy, depending on how you doctor it up. Yeah. Do you guys have an air popper? We do. Yeah. And we don't use yeah, oil it's, either. It's just straight air. Yeah, it's just straight up air. Awesome. So that's the outer affirmation. The inner outer affirmation, if you will, is that um, one of the things I've discovered is I love to doctor the popcorn, of course. Like you, you want to have like a little fat on there. So like butter, for instance, mm-hmm. and you got to have like the sea salt. But what I've discovered that's particularly good and I think a little bit more healthy is if you melt butter or margarine and you throw it on the air pop popcorn, it's going to like cause it to shrivel up. Like it'll definitely get soaked up and it will lose that crispy kind of crunchy nature. But if you use coconut oil, you get the same satisfying effect of fat or butter, but it doesn't cause the popcorn to shrivel up or get soggy. So I'm affirming throw a little bit of coconut oil. I know this sounds crazy, but that's the kind of thing you've come to expect when you listen to us talk. And this is surprisingly... (laughs) Good. Yeah. So I'm affirming coconut oil and sea salt on air pop popcorn. Delicious snack. That does sound good. I think I'm going to have to have some of that tonight. We probably, I think we have coconut oil too. Yeah. Just, I mean, co- I've learned that coconut oil is just like amazing for anything. Like you can rub it on your person. You can put it on your popcorn. That turned weird quickly. <laughs> you, can, you can put it in your beard also. Why would really you put good. it in your beard? Oh my word. It's super good for... Facial hair. I feel like all that would happen is I would get a bunch of pimples under my beard from the no, oil. No, 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 no. It's, it's supposedly like, it's, so it's a, one of those, it's like a carrier oil. Like supposedly it's really, especially if you want to make your own beard oil, you suppose coconut oil is a really good option. The only thing you got to watch out for is if you get a little aggressive, like I have at certain times <laughs> and you apply a little bit too much, you're going to go out into sunlight and just straight up blind people because your beard <laughs> is going to be so glistening. That's awesome. Yeah, that it's you're gonna need some sunglasses. We're gonna have so. to do that at the beach and see if people react. <laughs> like we're gonna have to overdo it and get really like lathered up. See what happens. Do you like coconut though? I'm not a huge fan of coconut. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the coconut oil is not like particularly coconut y. Yeah. It's got a little bit of carryover, but it's it's not particularly bad. It's just yeah, derivative. That's so. true. So, what are you denying? Um, I am denying a particularly pernicious product of the fall. I didn't mean mm-hmm. to have all that alliteration there, but it just kind of happened. But it's beautiful. I am denying ticks. So, you know, you, you grew up in, uh, New Hampshire and I grew up in Minnesota. We didn't have deer ticks. I carry Lyme disease, but we had wood ticks, which carry this thing called sleeping disease, which is like, what is that? It's like, it's like, like it's basically like narcolepsy. Like you can fall into this weird coma and it's not usually fatal, but it's, it's bad news, but ticks don't have any actual purpose that I can figure out in creation like they don't serve a purpose it's not like it's not like other animals feast off like eat them or uh, like they don't pollinate anything all they do is like suck blood and then they die like their whole purpose (laughs) is to like suck blood and here's here's the the part that most people don't realize everybody thinks like you get diseases from ticks when they bite you but that's not actually true you get diseases from ticks when they have gorged themselves on your blood and they are so full that in order to let go of you, they have to vomit back into the wound they've created. So like not only are they blood suckers, they don't serve a purpose, but they pass disease by puking into your body. Yeah. Yeah. It, We're talking just about backwash. Deny Take those backwash. all day long. It's terrible. And they're, they're really bad this time of year. Like they're really, really bad. This year it's weird because I'm finding more wood ticks on the dog than I am finding deer ticks, which is a little strange. Yeah, that I've never heard of the thing about sleeping disease, which again, sounds like what Paul would say. Yeah. Happens when you die. <laughs> yeah. Like he came down with a bad case of sleeping disease and yeah. and then he like was some no of more. You have, some of you have sleeping disease because <laughs> you've fallen yeah. away. <laughs> yeah. True story. Yeah. So that's obviously in the area in which we live in right now in South Central Pennsylvania. That's also a serious problem. So ticks are totally legit. If you have a tick on you and you've been bitten, you should definitely get that looked at. Um, can I recommend something? Yes. Can I like piggyback off your denial and turn it. it into a, a weird affirmation? So one of the things that we use that's super great for avoiding ticks is something called Wonderside. And it's all, it's an all natural tick repellent just made basically out of of essential oil. oil. So if you Google that wonder side, C-I-D-E, you're going to find this website. It was on Shark Tank actually. Nice. And yeah, it's really great. Smells awesome. It's it's all natural because there's a lot of really awful tick repellent stuff that has like a lot of serious chemicals in it and that can be damaging in its own right. So this is a great way to avoid ticks smell awesome and just use essential oils, which you could probably also use in your beard. Yeah. Also like just be wise about ticks. Like if you walking in the woods, just stomp your feet a couple times, like every 50 or 60 feet and it knocks them right off for the most part. Like shake it off. There's little things you can do, like take a shower as soon as you come in. But yeah, yes. ticks are bad. They're just, they're just disgusting, terrible little creatures that I just don't understand why they exist. It doesn't make any sense to me. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's totally possible that when we received that email about winning one of the top, being in the top 50 health organizations, that was it possible that was just very prescient because Maybe. we seem to like continue to go back to health Like issues. a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes, I should send an email to a random podcast that I know about that's not related to a subject and like be like, congratulations, you've become the number, the number seven um, rubber tree industry podcast and see if they start talking about rubber trees rubber trees 
I know it's the most random thing I could think of. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So what are you denying, Jesse? So this is a somewhat serious denial, and I'm just denying outright eisegesis, but in a way that is reflective of the fact that we're all prone to it. So, of course, eisegesis is reading ourselves into scripture, into like the text. And I want to kind of do like a, so here's a mini episode. Are you ready for this? A mini-sode. Yeah, in the, in the spirit of trying to understand where eisegesis is really present, what's like a, a passage of scripture that you're like, oh my word. People always tend to read themselves into this when they shouldn't. Is there one that like comes to your mind as like particularly egregious or offensive? Well, since it is July 4th this week, I'm sure that lots of people will be hearing that if America would only pray and if they were called by God's <laughs> name and were, if they would turn, that he would bless them and heal their land. I don't know. What is that like second Chronicles something, something, something? I don't remember uh, yeah, off the top I of my that's head. exact reference. Yeah, Second Chronicles yeah, well something. Done. So why is that, like in your opinion, why is that a really particularly bad reading of that passage? Because uh, America didn't exist under the reign of Solomon, and it's not a covenanted <laughs> nation called by God's name. So I don't know why that's so funny, but I just love that you were like matter of fact about that, yeah. which is really, again, why we're all prone to do this type of thing. So. This is more of, maybe I'm just preaching to myself. It's kind of a warning that I think we're our natural proclivity, like our natural default mode is to always put ourselves in the center of attention of the text that we read. And I'm not making this criticism just of, let's say, like pastors who are preaching, but all of us, we tend to read. So just kind of a reminder that, hey, the Bible is not about us. Yeah. You're not David. You're not David. (laughs) You're not Israel. Cut to Matt Chandler being yeah. like, hey, that's my jam right there. Yeah. And just for those who do want to see themselves in Second in Second Chronicles 714, which is the actual passage reference, immediately prior to that, it's like God's going to judge you because you're wicked, sinful people. And if God has judged you and expelled you out of the land, and if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, like it's all about what happens after the nation has basically been like destroyed by God's judgment. Yes. So I don't think we really want to claim that for America. I mean, not that it's probably not true. Like there's certainly a principle that can be drawn out of that, that, that God will judge those who sin, but if those, but those who repent will be certainly forgiven, but it, it's, it's definitely not a direct application. There's very few things in the Bible that are direct applications like that. Totally agree. And that's why I think it's just a, really, a good thing, at least for me, to kind of keep top of mind when we read. Not only does I think it cheapen really what the scriptures are telling us about God and his mission in the grand arc of salvation and redemption, but even beyond that, like you said, the best part of understanding that it's not about us is recognizing or being willing to understand that you really don't want to claim, for the most part, those passages for yourself. Yeah, agreed. They come with all these kind of attendant judgment for the most part. But also it's, it's just like you can't just take the one verse. If you're going to take that one verse and you got to take everything that comes within the context and you really don't want for the most part what comes in the context. Yeah. Just to uh, offer like the correct application of this passage, I'm just going to read it because the, the other thing we've talked about this a bunch of times where really like the easiest way to overcome a bad interpretation is just to like read a little bit more of the passage in context. So this is right. um, after the dedication of the temple, uh, which should be your first clue that this isn't about a secular nation, you know, like, 2,000, 3,000 years later. It says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, 
and all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. Now, if you really want to take this and apply it, um, redemptive historically, we really need to look at this more in terms of the church, right? Because Solomon as the king of Israel was typologically foreshadowing. And we'll, we see here, the Lord appeared to Solomon. So he's also typologically foreshadowing the prophet in Christ, the prophethood of Christ. But this really is something that we need to consider as the church, that when the church right. is facing these periods of apparent judgment um, or actual judgment, that uh, the proper response is not to wring our hands and ask why, but it's to humble ourselves and seek the Lord. And here's the key is he says, I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. And then he says, my ears and my heart will be there all the time. So the, the church should look at this and recognize that just as God was was able and willing to judge his people Israel, that at times he is executing chastisement and punishment and discipline upon the church. And therefore, we should be quick to repent and to seek God's deliverance from the things that are a consequence of our own sin. Right on. So there's that. That's beautiful. That's well said. And listen, we're just in the affirmations of denial section. That was like worth the admission of this podcast. And see, here's, right there. here's the key part about that. And we'll get then we'll get into our topic is I'm still able to, quote unquote, see myself in the text, but I'm not seeing myself in the text yes. in an eisegetical way. I'm exactly. drawing that meaning out of the text because other where, you know, I didn't do all the work to show that like Solomon is, is typologically the Christ here, literally the Christ in terms of being anointed as king. But you can, you can see throughout the whole breadth of scripture that the entire kingship of Israel is pointing forward to the Messiah to, there's a real clear contrast between Solomon who sits on David's throne temporarily and temporarily and Christ who will sit on, on David's throne permanently and forevermore. And so you can right. draw those connections. Well, Christ is the head of the church, just as Solomon was the head of Israel. So you can draw those connections and you bring that out of scripture. That's what exegesis is. You bring it out of scripture, that EX prefix is like exodus or exit. You bring it out of scripture. So it's important that we understand like all of scripture is for us. Most of scripture is about us and very little of scripture has nothing to do with us, right? There's, there's some that it's there for our edification, but there may not be a direct application right. of the church, right? Judas got a rope and hung himself. Well, that's there for my teaching and edification, but I shouldn't be looking for some modern application. That's just a historical fact that we have to understand about the, the history of salvation and what happened during the, the Passion Week. But there are most most of the texts in the scripture we can actually draw a meaning out that actually does apply to us. But we have to do that wisely and letting the scripture set those terms rather than kind of the Stephen Furtick method of seeing yourself everywhere and making the scripture apply to you however you want it to. Baba Booey. Baba Booey. I don't know what that means, but I, I like it. <laughs> That was my way of, I didn't want to go with the typical or traditional boom, but I want something different that was like, I affirm this. Amen. Yabba yes, I agree. Yeah, something contemporary. <laughs> so 
so that's great. And I think that's like, uh, I can't come up with the transition. Let's go with what we're going <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> talk about today. And what we're going to talk about actually is yet another uh, topic that has really come about from our listeners, which is always great. So hearing this feedback from listeners, giving questions or just things that are on their mind, theologically speaking. So rather than me intro exactly what we're going to talk about, let's play this voicemail that we received from our brother, Matt. So here he is. Hey guys, this is Matt calling here from Manitoba, Canada. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing you guys discuss the two natures of Christ and particularly how it pertains to Christ's death on the cross. So uh, obviously we know that Jesus Christ really did die on the cross um, and so pertaining to his personhood, Christ definitely died and yet we would also ascribe immortality to the divine nature And so, uh, touching on his divinity, Christ did not die. The the divine nature did not cease to exist. So I'm just wondering if you could uh, take some time to kind of explain that, uh, maybe even for kind of a popular level audience. Uh, I think this is an area of confusion that uh, many lay Christians would benefit from understanding better. Thank you. Bye. So this is a great question. Because I think that Matt is asking something that we've all at least thought about or should think about at some point in time. And basically what he's asking is, what does it mean to say that God died on the cross? And getting that question right isn't mainly about getting the theology right for its own sake, although we should really be concerned with getting our theology right all the time. But it's really about obtaining, eternalizing, articulating an answer that should be intended to clear away some theological confusions that might actually prevent us from intelligent participation in the life of the church. So this is a big question, but I'm actually really excited to talk about this because I think that's something that doesn't get a lot of play, and yet we really should kind of clear the air on what it means to say that God died on the cross. So where do you want to start on this? Well, first of all, I would say probably about 20% of our audience, and particularly the newer members of our audience, are having this flashback to an R.C. Sproul um, video from one of the Ligonier National Conferences where he denies that God died on the cross. And so R.C. Sproul, rest in peace. I suppose rest isn't the right word. He's in glory now. He's probably not resting. He's actually enjoying. Anyway, um, he uh, had some confusing language. And when you pressed him on this, and this is key, when you pressed him on this and you pushed a little deeper, his language was actually a little bit unorthodox, but his actual theology was was perfectly orthodox. So right. it's important to understand the dif- those two differences between sort of infelicitous or unlucky speech or un- unhappy speech and actual heresy. But Great um, word. The, the reason that his language was problematic was because he was talking about death and talking about what happens in death in a way that actually doesn't match up with the way he or other Christians would define death. So we have to understand that talking about, in order to understand what it means for God to die on the cross, we have to break that down kind of into component parts. So we have to talk about what it means for God to do something. What are, who, who are we talking about? What's the context we're talking about? And then we also need to understand what die on the cross means in relation to that. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, so that's really good, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised that you would come up with a sweet introduction, even though we didn't, <laughs> we don't coordinate any of this ahead of time. Uh, because, it, you know, 
I always think of like this hymn by Charles Wesley where right. he says like, Oh love divine, what hast thou done? The immortal God hath died for me. And that's like a seriously bold statement because it's saying that God died. And yet in the scriptures, we find the same kind of bold statement. So of course, in like Acts 20, 28, we find, you know, Luke writing, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased by his own blood. So this is, I think, how the voice of faith speaks when it confesses what God has done. I mean, it's a good Christian sentence to say God has died. But to your point, when theologians consider that kind of stark paradoxical statement, you know, God died, there is this instinct to clarify what's being said. And that's a really good instinct that we should all follow because they do not want to remove the shock or the force. I mean, that would be bad theology. But I think what they want to do is to make sure that the true paradox rather than something else is being communicated. So Theologians want to rule out misunderstandings that either take away the shock or substitute it for the fake shock of logical incoherence. And I think right. that's kind of what you were drawing at, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to understand, um, you know, it, there's so many times that we kind of inadvertently treat some of these more technical theological developments that happened in the fourth and fifth century. Um, we treat those as though... Yes, they're good. Yes, they're important. But let's get back to what the Bible says, right? right? And so on a certain level, that's that's correct. Like the the theological insights of the 3rd, 4th and 5th century are only um only valuable insofar that they accurately reflect what the scriptures have to say. And that doesn't mean that they just parrot uh, parrot scriptural language because the 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 scripture itself gives us a warrant and a I think a command to write up confessions of faith to elaborate on the scripture in ways that don't just don't just mean like slicing and dicing scriptural passages together to create something new. So the language right. that we see in the Chalcedonian definition in 450 and, and further than that is good language. But at the end of the day, this really does go back, as you're pointing out. I mean, this is this is Luke writing in probably the, you know, like the mid 70s, maybe a little bit earlier than that, in the mid 60s, um, probably before 70, before the destruction of the temple, but probably not much before, um, but certainly not before like 65 around when Paul was brought to Rome, um, obviously just shortly after that, but not before his execution. So we have this really narrow window in the late sixties of when Luke was written, but earlier than that, this isn't just Luke's reflection of theology. This is Luke quoting Paul even earlier than that. So we have already from within, you know, probably like 20 or 30 years of Christ's death at a minimum, we have language of God shedding his blood. So there's there's this blending of, I don't want to say blending, but there's not a great way to explain it other than that. There's this blending of human and divine language in in the scriptures, in the theology of the early church that is, is getting there. And this is why this church had to come to a conclusion in 451 of the Costonian definition, not because they're wrestling with philosophical categories, which is kind of the the common trope you hear if you talk to like Jehovah's Witnesses or um, certain kinds of uh, errant and heretical groups like that, kind of modern day Sassinians, but because they're wrestling with the scriptural language of the apostles as they themselves were wrestling with the existence and the experience of the God man. And so this language here, and even, even to toss on top of that, right, we have the church of God 
which really you could read this and say the church of Christ, that's who's, who's in view here by the word God. So there's also a high Christology operating here, but then along with that high Christology, there's a clear statement of Christ's humanity in that this God who has a church purchased that church with his blood. Well, God doesn't have blood. So what do we do with that? Yes. Yeah. Right. You've totally beat me to Chalcedon. Well, of course, that's kind of my specialty in in seminary. Your specialty. It is. I, this was like what I did my like almost all of my theological work in seminary on was like the fourth, the conciliar theology of the fourth and fifth century. So this just gets my this just pardon the inadvertent pun. This gets my blood going to like talk about this stuff. No, that's why I love talking about you with this this kind of thing. So as like a, total, a quick aside, because you mentioned like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I want to say, like, anytime the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or anybody else for that matter comes to your door, please always invite them in. And I would also recommend have them come back, spend a little time studying and researching what they've said, Mm -hmm. and make them cookies, and then have them come back and hang out for a little bit. That's like a total aside. But I I agree with you, and I think what you said before about a good place to start understanding what it means that God died, what death is, what God accomplished on the cross, some of the stuff we talked about before, but not necessarily in this really narrow context. I think it's possible, but it's like super erroneous to think that when we say God died, that means something like, well, just as there is human death for humans to die, there's apparently some kind of divine death for God to die. And that's what happened at Calvary. But that analogy is, in my estimate, and I think according to the scriptures, complete nonsense. Yeah. Nonsense. So death is a concept that really only works inside the context of creation. You need finite contingent existence to have its eclipse or disillusion in death. Right. So divine death as is some kind of analog of quote unquote human death is I don't think even really a coherent idea. No, it's So not. it seems to belong to this category of like tricks you can play with language. So like by combining any adjective and any noun, like square circle, cold heat, country music, like divine <laughs> death, like all those things. Like when you remove the shimmera of properly understanding divine death, you can see that God died means that God experienced the only kind of death there is to experience. And that is creaturely death. Right. So really we're trying to understand how could that have happened? Like you said, God doesn't have blood. So what the heck is Luke talking about here? Yeah. And so we have to understand, and this is where RC Sproul um, and a lot of people following him get it wrong, is that death is not the cessation of existence when you're talking about humans, right? When you're talking about animal death or plant death, sure. An animal, a biological organism that is exclusively biological, exclusively physical, ceases to exist in a meaningful sense upon death. Right now, yeah, the the physical matter of a of a deer that gets hit by a car, like the physical matter of a deer, continues for a time. But the what we would consider life, what we consider the the animated existence of that animal, ceases to be. But when we're talking about humans, and this is where I think we have to carefully depend on our confessional traditions to help us navigate this. So this is one of those things where you're not going to find like a question in the Westminster Catechism that says like, well, what is death? Um, I don't believe that there's a question like that in larger catechism. I'm not as well versed on the, the Heidelberg Catechism or the Lutheran Catechisms, but I don't think there's a question that explains exactly what death is. But if you read carefully... And you you understand, and this isn't even reading between the lines. This is just synthesizing what it says. Um, question thirty seven of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, 
what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer is the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do pass immediately into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So we can read this question. We can understand from this question and this answer that the, the Westminster divines, at least in understanding what happens to believers after death, they say that the souls of believers and right. This is just following the biblical language. The souls right. of believers immediately go to be with Jesus are immediately sank fully sanctified and brought into probably kind of an intermediate state of glory because glorification is defined as the full glorification, both body and soul. So that doesn't happen to the resurrection, but the souls of believers persist into another spiritual realm or another spiritual state after death. And here's where it gets key. And this is where it'll tie into our conversation a little bit. The bodies of believers still remain united to Christ. So it's not as though our right. union with Christ is purely a spiritual union. It's a mystical union, but it's not a purely spiritual union is that I'm united to Christ. And this is this Heidelberg Catechism one, right? I am not my own, but belong to my savior, body and soul, right? Body yes. and soul belong to my savior, Jesus Christ. So my union with Christ as a Christian is both body and soul. And just because in death, my soul is separated from my body, right? That's, that's the definition of death that they're presenting here. My soul is separated from my body and goes to one place and my body goes into the ground or into the grave. But both of those components of my existence remain united to Christ. And so we can reason out now that if this is the definition of death, then this is what we have to understand in terms of how death and then the, the statement that God died, how does that actually clarify for us what we mean? Yeah. And this is the power of God manifested in wonderful practicality, right? Like I think sometimes we have a sense when we read or hear that answer to that question, that the body part is just kind of throwaway, but it's not like union in Christ is so substantial that it does reflect a practical reality with our physical bodies as well. And this is, I think, what drives us towards or clarified in rather maybe the Chalcedonian categories, which right. I'm still trying. I'm still trying to beat you to this. So like this is I think that's precisely where like those categories are relevant. And rather than like stripping away like the power of Wesley's words in his hymn, you have this incarnational theology of Chalcedon, which clarifies powerfully the statement that God died. Right. So according to the Chalcedonian explanation of the incarnation, you had the son of God took into personal union with himself, a complete human nature and thus existed in one kind of like theanthropic, if that's the right word, yep. I mean, you, you can tell me you know, this divine and human person. And I think that's getting to like to Matt's question about this idea of the two natures. Jesus of course did not cease to be God, but he took upon human nature into a hypostatic union with himself. He made that humanity his own. And in that appropriated humanity, he appropriated a real human death. He died the only death there is to die, and that's our death. But that goes back to, in terms of like full circle, everything you just said about the fact that when I die, I know that even now, body and soul, I am my Lord's, and it has been secured by him. He is so great, so powerful, so sovereign that there's nothing outside of his reach, and that includes the body even after we die. Yeah. Yeah, and you know— the Westminster divines were not some back, like backcountry podunk people that thought that like <laughs> the body in the ground was like sleeping. 
So when they say right, that, like right. the bo- the the bodies of believers still being united with Christ do rest in their graves, they understood that decomposition happens. They under they're not thinking like, oh, the body's taking a nice little nap. So like we have to understand that this language of the body still being united to Christ and the soul going to be with Christ in glory and personal presence, like that's that's the understanding of what death is for a righteous person. Now. Now, the death of the wicked is a is a different kind of discussion. Um, I reject vehemently reject annihilationism. I would actually say it rises to the level of heresy. That's a question for a different episode. But the the annihilationist thesis that the the wicked are are ultimately destroyed and cease to exist simply does not square up with the facts of creation. And here's where here's where we have to understand this: the human soul is not any more eternal or undestroyable than any other contingent being in that apart from the continual sustaining by of it by God, it would pass out of existence. But God has created the human soul within the contingency of him sustaining it. The human soul is a immortal soul. So when we say it's immortal, what we mean is that there's no power in heaven or earth apart from God choosing no longer to sustain its existence, which he has kind of covenantally swore not to do. There is no power in heaven or earth that could cause a human soul to cease to exist. And here's where that comes into into importance is if you look at the Chalcedonian definition, and this is where we have to go for understanding what it means for God to die on the cross. If you go into the Chalcedonian definition, there's two points that the Chalcedonian definition is making. One, that the person of Christ is a single person. We see that through the repeated kind of repeated refrain that there is a self-same person, right? The self-same perfect in manhood, the self-same perfect in Godhood. This one person who was eternally the divine logos, the second person, the Trinity, that self-same person who was begotten of the Father before all ages has now been begotten by the of of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. So there's one person, but of this for this particular question, there's this second point that are often called the four negations. And it says here that um, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, and here are the four negations: unconfusedly, unchangeably. Yes indivisibly and inseparably. So it's really important for us to understand that that does not say unconfused, unchangeable, although that's not all that different, uh, unconfused, unchanged, undivided and unseparated. That's not what it says. What it says is unconfusedly, meaning they cannot be confused, unchangeably, meaning that this union cannot be changed, indivisibly, meaning the union cannot be divided and inseparably, meaning that the union cannot be separated. Not that it is not one of those things, but that it cannot be one of those things. And so when we talk about the death of Christ on the cross, we are, we are forbidden from the by the Chalcedonian definition from thinking of the human person, and this isn't just Christ as a human person, human persons as a whole, as though the soul and the body can ultimately and permanently be destroyed. Because if the soul or the whole person was destroyed, then Christ either has a different nature than us, one that cannot be destroyed, that is not subject to destruction, and so not like us, or it's separable because if Christ's nature could be destroyed, his human nature could ultimately be destroyed. It means that it could be separated. It could be divided. And like we said, 
The Kelsonian definition does not allow us to say that. So we have to understand that death cannot mean the cessation of existence, either of uh, Christ as a, as a distinct person, right? That's kind of why R.C. Sproul doesn't get this right. It's because he wants to say, well, the second person, the Trinity or God himself didn't cease to exist. And so we can't say that God died. Well, that's not what death means. Or we can't say that death actually was the cessation of existence because that violates this this proposition here. Right. And there seems to be so much wonderful continuity when we look at it this way, I think appropriately in the scriptures, because we're, we're seeing exactly what you said, that death is a real thing. And yet at the same time, God, of course, did not cease to exist. And when you look at all those Chalcedonian definitions, which you've just said, to me, it strikes me that there's just this amazing, like Trinitarian presuppositionalism embedded yes. within it. So in stating that the incarnation, in stating the incarnation, like in that way, it's basically implying that one of the presuppositions is this doctrine of the Trinity. So right. in the sentence, when we say God died, the subject God has to mean the second person of the Trinity, right. God, the son, and each of the three persons is God, but they're distinct persons standing in interpersonal relationship with one another. Right. So the son is not like one third of God or the son part of God or the nice version of God, but just God. So God, the father so loved the world that he gave his only son and thus God, the Son, one of the Trinity, died on the cross. So Chalcedon already provides us with Christology in a Trinitarian perspective, and it really makes no sense without presupposing the Trinity. So this Chalcedonian statement on the death of God, which, uh, which I think is, I understand it, is something like this. The eternal second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took into personal union with himself without confusing it, like you've said, changing it, dividing it or separating it from his eternal divine nature, a complete human nature through which he experienced death. How beautiful is that? Right. Like that is the appropriate summary of the scriptures. And I don't think you or I are trying to elevate Chalcedon to say like, well, this is on the same level as the Bible, but we are merely saying this is a wonderful, explicit, meticulous, and very precise definition and summation of what the scriptures say about what Christ accomplished on the cross. Right. And when we separate, like you just said, either the nature or the act what we're basically doing is we're punishing ourselves because we're saying that God does not hold us body and soul. Right. And what he explicitly says in the scriptures is that is in fact what he does. And he manifests that on the death and the cross. I don't know if this is coming out right, but it's just beautiful. Like it just strikes me as like a, a holy, wonderful thing, holy, both in completeness and in separation in the fact that we know that we are secured in every conceivable way of our, our life, both physical and spiritual. Yeah. And you know, that, that point is really important about the Trinity is that I've said this before, that good Christology and good Trinitarian theology are sort of um, mutually regulative. And what I mean by yes. that is that if you get your doctrine of the Trinity wrong, it's almost impossible to get your doctrine of Christology right. And if you get your doctrine of the incarnation wrong, it's almost impossible to get the Trinity right. And conversely, if you get the Trinity right, it's almost impossible to get your doctrine of in the incarnation wrong. And this is one of those things that if you get the doctrine of the Trinity wrong, and I'm not saying that R.C. Sproul got the doctrine of the Trinity wrong in like capital W wrong, but he did have this tendency to emphasize the singularity of God over and above the plurality of God. And so this is this was basically what he's saying is that 
If we say that God died on the cross, what we're saying is that the divine nature was destroyed and ceased to exist. And if that happened, then all of creation would cease to exist because creation is sustained by the divine nature. And if the divine nature ceases to exist, there's nothing to sustain creation. Well, the problem with that is that the divine nature is not a single person, right? The divine right. nature when considered as a nature is not personal. And that that's people are like freaking out when I say that. But what I mean is the divine nature is only personal in the father, the son and the Holy spirit. There's no personal existence of the divine nature apart from the three persons of the Trinity. Now, some reformed theologians, and I don't think this is a wise way to talk, but I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Some, some reformed theologians will speak in terms of the essential acts of God. And more or less what they mean is that there are certain actions or certain acts or certain operations that God engages in, in scripture, where we cannot clearly see that act terminating on one or the other persons, right? The, the external operations of the Trinity are inseparable. We've said that a number of times. So every act of the Trinity is an act of the whole Trinity, but there are certain acts of the Trinity, which scripture, uh, scripture, uh, terminates or assigns to particular persons, right? The son is the redeemer of humanity. The spirit applies sanctification and salvation to us. The father is the creator, right? We see that kind of language. There are some acts in scripture which are not attributable to, in terms of this, this termination of acts, attributable to a particular person. And so we can talk about those in generic sort of generic God terms, not referring to any one person of the Trinity, simply because scripture doesn't doesn't command us or demand that we speak of them in that way. But that is not to say that the divine nature is acting apart from the acts of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. To, right. to, to say that is actually a form of modalism where you you or more properly speaking, what Bavink calls quadra uh, quadra theism, right? That there's this sort of fourth person hiding behind the three persons of the Trinity and that person is acting. And that's actually really close to the mistake that R.C. Sproul t- makes in that video I referenced where he says, well, God didn't die on the cross. Jesus Christ, the man died on the cross. Well, Jesus Christ, the man is God. So either you're saying that there's some fourth person who is, who didn't die on the cross, or you're saying that the person who died on the cross is not God, neither of which Sproul was saying. And to my pleasure and delight, after I wrote an article about that, someone forwarded me a video from another conference where he was pressed on the issue and he clarified in a totally orthodox way. So I have no concerns about his orthodoxy, but we have to be cautious with the language that we use because the the language we use leads us to certain belief systems, not the other way around. We usually, right. we usually formulate our thoughts and f- structure our thoughts and they are transformed by the way we think, by the way we speak. So if you talk about God as though he's a single person with three existences or three, uh, three faces in the world, you're going to eventually start to think like a modalist. So you have to be careful. And that's, again, that's not what RC Sproul was doing, but you have to be careful how you talk. Um, and that's, that's where we have to get with this, right? Is what do we mean now, now that we've taken all of that and put it together, what exactly do we mean when we say that God died on the cross? Well, we're talking about the second person of the Trinity, not the, the yes. first or the third. And since all of the operations of the Trinity are operations of the whole Trinity, and we're saying the father and the spirit did not die on the cross, that restricts us to saying that the son must have had some way to operate in a way that is divisible from the Trinity. And the way that he operates that is divisible from the Trinity 
is in acting according to his human nature, because the human nature was not united to the father, nor to the spirit, but only to the son. So what do we do with that, Jesse? <laughs> that, that just came out of nowhere. That was, <laughs> I didn't anticipate that you were going to hit me with that question. Pop quiz, like, hot shot. Yeah, just straight up. I mean, so here's what I love about everything you just said. One is that you're, you're trying to be really precise with your language. And I think there's sometimes a temptation when we hear that to think like there's some kind of trickery at play here, but there's really no sleight of hands. Like in the expanded paraphrase that you just gave, it's the same submission as saying God died. And the longer explanation is what the shorter explanation means. Right. And both explanations are true precisely insofar as they mean each other. So I want to say that, like, I really appreciate you really trying to be precise about that. Um, what we do with that, I think, is that we move forward in our lives here on earth and with hope in the future, understanding that God has us securely and firmly in the palm of his hand, both in the spiritual sense and in the physical sense. And I think that, practically speaking, what we're basically saying is that only the conceptual categories of Chalcedonianism, as you just described them, taken together with this proper Trinitarian context can banish these unworthy notions from Christian theology and doxology where we get confused as to what it means and therefore either make God into a modalist or we just fail to understand what Christ has actually accomplished on the, on the cross in redeeming both what is physical and also what is spiritual. And that set of distinctions I think have always functioned in, with a, within a Christian thought to enable it to retain power and precision both with these longer and shorter de kind of definitions, I would say that at the bottom, at the bottom line, at the end of the day, what this gives us with a proper understanding is just an immeasurable sense of hope of what it means to be a Christian. I, I guess that's it for yeah. me. Yeah. And there's one more step that we kind of have to take with this theologically is now that we've established that it's the second person of the Trinity dying on the cross. When we say God died on the cross, we're talking about the son. We have to understand how that operates in the hypostatic union. Right. So sure. if we're not careful, just as we want to avoid um, sort of this modalistic implication that we sometimes see. We also have a tendency to separate the natures of Christ when we try to explain this. And so you can go back and listen. We've talked about this subject in in variety of ways many, many times on the, the, the show here. But we have to be careful not to now treat the, the two natures of Christ as though they were two persons. And so right. one of the ways that people explain this, and this is kind of how um, R.C. Sproul ended up doing it. And there are certain errors that kind of like match up with each other. This error of treating the divine nature as though it was a person also tends to treat the human nature of Christ as though it was a person. And so that kind of like quadra quadra theism that Bobbing talks about sort of matches up with a sort of functional Nestorianism. And so R.C. Sproul says, well, it wasn't God who died on the cross. It was the human nature of Christ that died on the cross. Well, depending on what's meant by that, that could be correct. But what we have to remember right. is that natures do not do things, right? Natures do not verb. Whatever it is, they don't, they don't eat, they don't sleep, they don't die, they don't live, they don't do anything. Because apart from being a personal nature, also known as a person, they don't operate. They don't do anything. So when we talk about the human nature of, of Christ dying on the cross, what we mean is that Christ died on the cross, a human death as a human. And so right. we have to say that 
Christ experienced human death, really truly experienced it. Not like, um, not like he ran some kind of simulation and got an understanding, right? But he really truly experienced human death. That is the human soul and the human body that he took upon himself in the incarnation. The, that human body and that human soul really were separated from each other. His body, just as ours one day will, his body truly did remain united to his divine nature and reunited to Christ, right? Our union with Christ mirrors the hypostatic union. And so his right, body, exactly. uni- still being united to his divine nature, did rest in the grave. And his soul, still being united to his divine nature, did immediately pass into glory, Right. And was immediately in the presence of God. And so those two things happened to Christ. So the definition of human death being the separation of a human's body from a human soul, that really and truly genuinely did happen to the second person of the Trinity. But because it's nonsense to talk about the human body and human soul of the divine nature of Christ being separated from each other, that doesn't make any sense. It's just a logical incoherency. We have to say that this death was located in or experienced by Christ in his humanity. And I want to just read one um, one section out of the confession here, because I think they put it very clearly and they really help understand that reading this was really a game changer for me in a lot of ways, because it helped me understand that this theology is not just a patristic theology, but it's a theology that was appropriated by the Reformation, appropriated both in Lutheran, although not as not as um appropriately, not as fully in the Lutheran tradition, but appropriated by the Lutherans and the Reformed. And it's chapter eight of the Westminster Confession. And it's section seven. It says Christ in the work of mediation. And that's kind of shorthand for saying throughout the entire incarnation, which started at the conception of Christ and will carry on forevermore in the work of mediation acts according to both natures. So it's Christ who acts according to both natures, not the natures. And then it says by each nature doing that, which is proper to itself. Now I would quibble a little bit with the language, but what they're saying is that Christ acts according to both natures. So Christ, the single person acts according to each nature with each nature being acted to in a way appropriate or proper to that nature. And then it says yet, by reason of the unity of the person, right? So this is such a beautiful, short little summary of the, of the Chalcedonian definition, right? They're reflecting on the same question. How do we, how do we see in scripture that human language is, is predicated of God or predicated of Christ in reference to divine titles by reason of the unity of person, that which is proper to one nature, i.e., Christ died on the cross. Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Christ hungered in the desert. Christ had blood by which he purchased the church, which is proper to one nature, is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. So although it is proper, although talking about Christ's blood is proper of the human nature, it's denominated or named to the other, to the single person under the other name. So it's appropriate to say that the blood, right, human category, was the blood of God, divine category. And and rather than rather than us looking at this and saying this gives us warrant to do this, really what it is is them faithfully summarizing the scripture. I mean, I I I would never in a million years read Acts 2028 20, and come up with this theological statement. 
Right. This shows you For how sure. brilliant these people are. On top yes. of that, it shows you how much they were depending on the reflections of the church in the Chalcedonian definition. So this this really is a absolutely flawless, beautiful summary of what we see in the Chalcedonian definition. And the Chalcedonian definition was written in part to answer an objection by Nestorius of doing exactly this. Nestorius said, more or less, you can't you can't predicate um, a divine name when you're talking about something that's only proper of the human nature. You can't talk about Mary being the mother of God because being born is a human category. So you have to use right. a human title in reference to a human category. And the church said, no, the scripture doesn't do that. The scripture is happy to talk about the blood of God or talking about murdering the author of life, right? Murdering, you can't murder God, yet you murdered the author of life, which is a divine category. So the church right. reflected on this and said, no, we absolutely can. Not only can we, but we must because the scripture does. And the Westminster divines here are just re just repeating that uh, theology that the church has always held. This is part of the wonderful glory of the gospel, right? Right. That it's simple enough for a child to understand that God died. And yet we've just spent the last hour or so trying to really unpack what that means and really haven't even plumbed the depths of that answer. Right. And so this is what's beautiful is that I think there's a, a temptation to claim that it was the second part person of the Trinity who died. And like you said, there is, in a sense, a way in which that is correct. But there can also be a period or a kind of a portion in which there's a mutation within the very being of God, because when we look at the Trinity, we say that there are three in one essence, and that though there are personal distinctions among the persons of the Godhead, those distinctions are not essential in the sense that they are differences in being. So death is something that would involve a change in one's being. So right. here we have the atonement. It was made by the human nature of Christ. And somehow, again, people tend to think that that somehow lessens the dignity or the value of the substitutionary act as if we are somehow implicitly denying the deity of Christ. But it's the God-man who dies. Right. But that death is something that's experienced only by the human nature because the divine nature isn't capable of experiencing death. So to me, at the end of the day, in the final analysis, we have this wonderful statement, both in the scriptures and then demonstrated in the act of God's loving us by sending his son, that God did not take the easy way out right. or save us in a way that leaves him untouched by the depth of human suffering. We can be confident that the Almighty One went to the uttermost limits to accomplish our rescue, and that's manifested on the death of God on the cross. Right, and there's a profound mystery in that, because yes, on one absolutely. level, God, God as God, right? The Father, the Son, and the, and the Spirit experienced no change, experienced no suffering, experienced no loss in the act of saving humans. On one level, that's true, right. because right. if it's not true, then we're not talking about God anymore. Right. But... In, in another level, um, God, this goes back to what we were talking about with prayer last week. God reveals to us in scripture, he uses language, right? When we say God so loved the world that he gave his only son, or when we talk about other scriptures that say that God did not withhold his only son, that's clearly the language of giving something up, right? He didn't just give yes. his only son like, uh, like I gave you a high five, which didn't cost me anything, but like he gave up his only son, meaning the language is that of loss, so we have to affirm that, properly speaking, God did not lose anything in the act of atoning for our sin. 
But in terms of how God reveals himself, he's saying true things about himself in improper or kind of allegor or uh, analogical ways. He did give up something, right? He sacrificed his only son. He did not withhold his only son from us. And then there's a whole other register of the fact that the second person of the Trinity, who is fully God in exactly the same way and exactly the same sense that the father is fully God, that the first and third person are fully God, that person truly did enter into human suffering by being becoming what he was not and not ceasing to be what he was, he really, really did in a proper sense experience human suffering and death. So all three of those things are true. And what that does for us, th this is the payout of all this, right? This is very abstract, very heady theology, right? We might have some people, although our audience tends to dig the heady theology, but there might be some people who hear this who go, well, what does this matter? Why does this really matter? What this matters is that no matter which way you're talking about it, God did what was necessary to accomplish the salvation of those who were his. Right. right. Whether whether we talk about that in God, somehow in, in divine language that, that is accommodated to our, our feeble minds, somehow we can talk about the impassable God as God giving up and suffering something, right? S somehow... A analogically, we can talk about the impassable God suffering loss in the in the incarnation and um, and crucifixion, not in the sense that it changed his being, but whatever whatever the language in the scripture means, that's clearly there. Whatever that means, it means something true. We can't necessarily right. understand what it actually means, but we can understand what God is revealing to us in it. But on top of that, God really did experience suffering. God God experienced suffering, actual real suffering. God experienced right. that on our behalf in the work of Jesus Christ, according to his human nature. That's there's no other no other religion on earth that even comes close to something like that. And exactly. that's what the payout is, is that this is not some abstract theology. This is a real suffering man on a cross 2000 years ago. And that man was not just a man. That man was God. So we're either forced to say that that man was not God or we're forced to say that God died on the cross. The, the later is not biblical, clearly not, or the former is clearly not biblical. But to say that God died on the cross is not only biblical, it's logical and it's confessional. So, yes. so all three kind of vectors that we look at, does this fit in with what I see the scripture to be saying? Yes. Does this fit in with what the history of the church has taught me about what the scripture is saying? Yes. Does this fit in with what logic dictates is not only possible, but necessary? Yes. This is not just a possible interpretation of the scripture. This is a good and necessary consequence of the scripture that God died on the cross. To deny that is to deny the scriptures. That, that doesn't mean everybody who denies it is a heretic. It means some people don't understand that. But to deny that right. God died on the cross or that God was born of the Virgin Mary or that God suffered in the desert and was hungry, to deny that is to deny the scriptures and to deny the faith. So we have to be really careful how we parse that out. Because again, even someone who's saying, who's denying that, who holds orthodox theological thought, if you deny that linguistically long enough, it most likely will lead you to deny that theologically as well. So we have to be precise. We have to be careful. And we have to let the scriptures and our confessional tradition guide us into the correct path. Here's what I'm going to say to all of that. Baba booey. <laughs> Yabba dabba doo. <laughs> Is that my new catchphrase? Did we just give ourselves new catchphrases? 
I, I don't know. So like speaking of catchphrases in lieu of spiritual conferencing, cause we just absolutely got into it there. And I love that. All I want to say is amen to that because that, again, this makes me want to jump up and run through the wall. Um, two things. One is that there've been so many great potential, I would say bumper stickers that we have coined in the course <laughs> of our conversations, maybe none so great as nature doesn't verb. Yeah. Nature doesn't verb. <laughs> That's so good. I'm pretty sure I stole uh, that from it, Mike Horton. Oh, really? Well, that's really great. Yeah, it might be like that. a paraphrase, but yeah. I love that. I'd be happy to like go 50-50 on him with the bumper sticker yeah. proceeds on that. <laughs> um, but the second thing is, as we kind of like wrap up this conversation, do we want to talk about, can we mention, is it like legal to talk about what we're going to, the new series that we're going to embark on we after can. this episode? Yeah, let's do it. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. So are we? have we officially decided that we're going to call this like the summer of eschatology the summer of the last things <laughs> coming soon to a reform brotherhood podcast near you yeah so what's on tap so we are going to take uh we're going to break it up but we're going to do it it's going to be a little shorter than our atonement series but we got a lot of feedback that these sort of like long form discussions about a particular topic are really helpful for people so we have a, a ton of feedback from people who said i've never really studied the atonement and yes one episode is far too short to get into it but i don't have time to read like a theology book on the atonement so these longer form conversations that are broken up into digestible chunks have been helpful for people so we're going to take um the remainder of the summer we're going to continue to do book casts we're going to continue to do question casts but we're going to take three episodes we're going to talk about eschatology and so don't see this as me directly associating these two i hear you all you historical premillennials don't at me but we're gonna the first episode is gonna be historical premillennialism and dispensationalism the only reason that those two are in the same episode is because it's premillennialism so dispensationalism is just kind of a weird mutation of premillennialism so don't be offended. Uh, the next one we're going to talk about. Oh, I, I forgot what we're going to talk about. It's um, preterism. So we're going to do both uh, partial and full preterism. And then uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit about something called idealism. It'll probably come out during that as well. And then uh, we're going to talk finally about amillennialism and postmillennialism, which are similar in their relationship to um, each other as premillennialism and dispensationalism are. So we're going to take three episodes. We're going to dive into each one a little bit deeper than we might be able to do if we did a general eschatology episode. Um, And that should last us through the rest of the summer. It's going to be fun. It is. Doom and gloom everywhere, though. Except except that last episode. You know you want to get on that. Golden age. Yeah, it's going to be great. Yeah. I love it. Grab a towel, a beach towel. Yes. That was not a weird, that was not a weird reference to showering. That was more of like a <laughs> summer reference. This, Grab. this eschatology uh, series is going to snap you right in the fanny with a towel. <laughs> Things get weird when we start to go off script, Jesse. Uh, that's great. Yeah. I, but I appreciate that you pretend that we even had a script when we started this. <laughs> yeah. There's no script. Well, once again, I believe we have provided the definitive episode on addressing the question, what does it mean to say God died on the cross? You know, you keep on saying this and maybe someday it'll be true. (laughs) I mean, I think we do have the definitive reform preaching by Joel Beakey episodes because I think we're the only people talking about that book, which is a shame because it's an amazing book. It is an amazing book. People should get on that. Yes. Well, Jesse, uh, I appreciate you doing the legwork of pulling this question out of the voicemail and uh, talking through this with us. So if you have questions uh, that you want to send us, Jesse, what's that phone number? We don't announce it very much anymore. 
Yeah, we don't because we've kind of like, so here's the thing. I know some people have asked us what it, maybe actually one person has asked us what's going on with the question cast. Do you guys still answer questions or do you just not care anymore? We do care. And there is a question backlog. So we have a ton of questions, but you're more than welcome, of course, to jump in and send us some more or ask us some more. I actually, at this moment in time, cannot remember the <laughs> phone number. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I think <laughs> what it, is the voicemail number? I think Do it's you know? 607-444-2767. That is what it is, bros. Bros. Yeah, so call that. Leave us a voicemail. You're going to hear a lot more questions this summer. we got some great question casts on the way. So jump in, saddle up, get in on the mix. There you go. Well, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh-